We'll invite you to turn to some of the text scriptures that we've uh, been using for this series. We're talking about how to be led by the Holy Ghost. Our main text scripture is over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Paul writing to the church said, And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Son of God. So he tells the makeup of man, the entirety of the completeness, the wholeness of man's makeup. He is a spirit being, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Now we also know that uh, the Bible tells us, he wrote to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians 5.17, he said, If any man be in Christ, old things are passed away and all things become new. Well, what things pass away and what things become new? We know the things of the body don't pass away, and those, don't, those things don't become new. And we know things of the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Those things don't pass away, and those things don't become new at the new birth. So what things pass away and what things become new? He's talking about becoming new spiritually. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, You must be born again. That which is born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's talking about the new birth or the recreation of the human spirit. When you were born again, God didn't just say, well, okay, I'll pass over everything that you've done. He made you a new spirit being. It's, the Bible is really specific when it calls you a new creation or a new creature in Christ Jesus because it's something that never existed before Jesus was raised from the dead. You are a brand new species of being. And those old things was the old spirit that passed away. And all things, spiritual things, have become new. You don't have a spiritual past. At the new birth, you're recreated just like a baby is born. We don't look at a baby and say, oh, what a sweet little innocent child, but oh, what a terrible past it's got. It has no past. It's brand new. You are a brand new spirit being. We know, therefore, that it's important for us to measure your own spiritual things although we have to take care of natural things and so forth. But you know as well as I do that billions of dollars are spent every year in this country alone for the development of the the human body. Fitness and nutrition and so forth is a multi-billion dollar industry every year. People pay money, good money, hard-earned money every day of their lives for the development and the upkeep of their bodies. You know as well as I do that even more money is spent to develop and train and fit the human soul or the mind, the intellect, with all the institutions of higher learning. That's maybe a misnomer nowadays. At least that's the title they use, institutions of higher learning and and graduate studies and continuing education and so forth is all designed to uh, develop or equip or fit the human mind, the intellect, which is a part of the soul. But what effort is made by the world to develop their spirits? Very little, if any. You start talking about spiritual things. You start talking about man being a spirit being and and having the opportunity. Not only the responsibility, but just the opportunity to develop and train himself spiritually. And most churches, most pastors, most ministers will look at you like you're crazy. Because it's just an unknown subject in the church world. Shouldn't be, but it is. I believe that's one of the greatest works of the devil in his operation of deception against the church is to keep the church blind to who we are as being spirit beings, what belongs to us, and how to train and develop our spirits. Because that's where the real victory in life is. 
is to the training and education and development of the human spirit. Well, in Romans chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, these are also two other text scriptures we've been using. Romans 4, uh, 8, 14, excuse me, says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, meaning every child of God should be led by the Holy Ghost. Every child of God can be led by the Holy Ghost. And as far as God's concerned, He'll always do His part to guide us. But then the question that has to be asked, how? Verse 16 tells us, the Spirit itself, King James says itself, He's not an it. The, the Spirit Himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. The most important thing it is, there is for the, the believer, the Christian, to know in his life is that he is a child of God. And notice the way that God causes you to know that is that he bears witness with your spirit. He doesn't bear witness with your mind. He doesn't use circumstances in the natural realm to show you or teach you or train you. The Bible says in the most important things, which indicates to us that it will work this way in every other area as well, in the most important things and even in the smallest details of life, the Holy Ghost will bear witness with your spirit. Well, if the church doesn't know that they are spirit beings, if they, didn't, if they don't know what bearing witness with the spirit, the spirit of God bearing witness with their spirit means, how are we going to effectively be led by the Holy Ghost? I would submit to you that most of the church isn't. Most of the church world doesn't know and therefore most of the church world misses out on the leading of the Holy Ghost. Finally, our, uh, our last text, text scripture I'll get it out in a minute is in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 the spirit of man everybody say the spirit of man the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord another translation says the light or lamp of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly now in the the day that the Proverbs were written they used little oil lamps to to give uh, light in darkness to enable you to 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 see your path as you were walking in the dark, they use the lamp to represent illumination and revelation. So it says the Bible is teaching us the principle that the spirit of man is the means whereby God will use to enlighten you and to reveal himself to you. Not through your mind, not through your body. Most of the, of, of the, of the work that's done in, in religious circles is in the soulless area. You've got... Ministers and, and pastors and rabbi, or no, not rabbis, that would be the wrong group, wouldn't it? But uh, uh, priests and so forth that have got all these letters at the end of their names. They've got doctor's degrees and all this kind of stuff. But what have they done? They've trained their minds. But what about the training and the educating of the spirit? Folks, you cannot overemphasize how important the development and the training of the human spirit is. Well, the Bible tells us how to do it. It says it comes through the word. It says it comes through the word. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and their life. He didn't say the words I gave you are supposed to change your mind alone. He said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and their life. He went, he went further and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, the key to life is the word of God. Now, what kind of life is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the life of God. He's not talking about just physical existence. He's talking about the life of God. There's one and only one thing that's been given to the mankind to feed us spiritually, to develop us spiritually, and to train us spiritually, and that's the Word of God. Now, turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
I want to talk to you about another classification of uh, being that the Bible speaks of, classification of Christians. I want to start reading in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul's writing to the church and he says, Now we have received, not going to receive, but we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Well, what spirit is of God? The Holy Spirit. So notice he contrasts the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the world. Now, where would the spirit of the world operate? Here in this world. In other words, he's saying there's a spirit that's operating in this physical and natural realm. And it's not the Holy Ghost. So that does away with the idea that God's in control of everything that goes along here. Everything that takes place in the earth. Hurricanes are acts of God. No, they're acts of the spirit of this world. The Holy Ghost bears witness with your spirit. He doesn't operate in the physical realm. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. For what purpose? That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Notice God doesn't show you what he gives you through natural circumstances. Well, what, how does he show you then? He shows you through the word. Which things also we speak. Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. Notice there's two kinds of wisdom. Just like there's two spirits that are operating, there are two kinds of wisdom. There's a man's wisdom, intellectual wisdom, and there's Holy Ghost wisdom. Now, what does the Holy Ghost wisdom do? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. The Holy Ghost wisdom will teach you to compare spiritual things with other spiritual things. In other words, not spiritual things with natural things. Not spiritual things with intellectual things. Spiritual things with spiritual things. In other words, the word of God to your situation. You begin to look at things in a spiritual manner. And you'll operate in Holy Ghost wisdom. God-given wisdom. But the natural man, verse 14. Here's what I want you to see. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, please notice that he's saying that the natural man, we'll define who the natural man is in a moment. Notice he's saying that the natural man cannot, not just doesn't choose to, but cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness unto him. Now, who is this natural man he's talking about? He's got to be talking about the unsaved. He's got to be talking about the unsaved. But now let's go a little bit further. What is it about the unsaved that puts them in this category? Well, first and foremost, they're spiritually dead. Anybody that's unsaved has not been and cannot be made a new creature until they make Jesus the Lord of their lives. They haven't been born again, so they're spiritually dead men. But what do spiritually dead men do? Well, they think and act in line with the spirit of this world. The world has its way of thinking. The world has its way of operation, and neither one of them are in line with what God and the Holy Ghost will direct you to do. So the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he receive them, or can he know them, rather, because they are spiritually discerned. But, verse 15, but he that is spiritual judges all things. The word judge means to search out and investigate. In other words, the man that's spiritual compares spiritual things with spiritual things. He that is spiritual judges all things. doesn't say he judges people. The Bible says not to judge people, but the Bible says to judge things. Jesus judged things but, and told us how. He said you can judge a tree by the fruit that it produces. 
Well, what's the importance of knowing that? Well, there's no importance to know that unless you're going to use it to judge things. That's the only place that it's beneficial. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Now, I want you to notice he's, used, he's just identified two classifications of people, a natural or an unsaved man and a spiritual man. Keep that in mind. He goes further in verse 16. He said, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The reason he puts that in there is just very simply saying, and, and allow me to paraphrase, you judge this for yourself. But he's just simply saying, when we're operating by the Holy Ghost wisdom, when we're operating according to the leading of God as spiritual men, judging spiritual things with spiritual things by the word, that's operating according to the mind of Christ. That's operating according to the mind of Christ. Now, you know as well as I do that Paul didn't write in chapter and verses. Nobody does. He wrote a letter. So chapter 3 is continuing on the same thought. Let's start reading in chapter 3 now. Verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual. Now he's talking to brethren, meaning Christians. So these are people that are saved. So now he's saying, I can't speak to you as spiritual people. You're not natural, unsaved. So what are they? I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Now he brings a third classification or a second classification of Christians, however you want to look at it. A second classification is Christians. The first classification of Christian he uses is spiritual. That's what we should attain to be. The second classification of Christians that he identifies is the condition that the Corinthian church is in. He says they are carnal Christians. What does carnal mean? Well, this word carnal means body ruled. In other words, they're still operating like the natural man. They're saved. They've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. But they're still operating according to the natural man's desires and, and thoughts and actions, behaviors. Folks, I would submit to you that's where most of the modern church world is. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as, unto, as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Baby Christians, in other words. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. A lot of people make a big deal about milk versus meat and that kind of thing. If you look at the, the letter that Paul writes here in the, the uh, Corinthian church, what he calls milk is way, 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 way more than most churches ever get. So if this is milk, what in the world is the church preaching? Most of the church rejects. Many of the things he writes. He writes about spiritual gifts. Oh, those passed away. Well, he says that's milk. He writes about judging somebody in the church that's living in sin. Turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You ever heard that in the Baptist church? Or any other denominational church? Any group do that? Paul calls that milk. Most of the things that Paul writes, except the love chapter in chapter 13, is accepted by the, the, the modern day church as either not for us or we've got a different angle on it. So what in the world is a modern day church preaching? Folks, do you realize that absent the truth of the word of God, how wide that swings the door open for the devil to work in our world. 
If the church is not standing up and being the church, if the church is not utilizing the power and the authority we have in the name of Jesus, what is there to stop the devil? I would submit to you that that's the reason why the world's in the mess it's in. We can look at it and we can blame the devil all day long, but the fact is the church hadn't been the church. And the Bible says that the only thing that holds the devil back from doing his greatest and best work where the Antichrist is concerned is the presence of the church here on the earth. Well, if just the presence of the church keeps the devil from doing everything that he wants to do, can you imagine what the church could do if we stood up and were really the church in the power and the, name, and the authority of the name of Jesus? That's the way God intended for it to be. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not surprised. He knew how, that was, how this was going to turn out. He knew it would be a, a small percentage of people that would take the word and accept the word and walk in the authority that it provides for us. He's not surprised. And he's still going to win out. But folks, notice that Paul is trying to overcome certain things. One of the things he's trying to overcome here is the carnality, the body-ruled condition of the early church. So he says, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Notice what Paul uses as the proof that they are carnal or body ruled. They're divided. They're in strife. They're jealous of one another. They're human. Well, Pastor Mike, are we as Christians not supposed to be human? You're not supposed to live like it. You're not supposed to, when I say human, I mean living according to the natural man's desires and, and behavior. You're not supposed to live according to the way the natural man thinks. You're not supposed to live according to the way that the natural man behaves. And again, I'm talking about the unsaved. You look at some of the polls that are done in the church. I was uh, impressed by one a couple of years back. It was college-age students. How many college-age students uh, think lying is wrong? Lying? I mean, isn't lying one of the big ones? I mean, doesn't everybody know lying's wrong? And the percentage of Christians, Christian students, Christian college students, that thought lying was wrong was just pitiful. They asked the same question about cheating on tests. And everybody would justify it and say, well, if you have to, you know, to get by, then it's okay. Folks, the world is not supposed, or the church is not supposed to live like the world. The unsaved are supposed to be able to see a difference between us and them. And there's only one thing that's going to make that happen, and that is for the church to become spiritual beings. Live according to the spiritual rebirth and recreation that's taking place on the inside of them. And that's only through the word. Now turn with me over to, uh, to Romans chapter 7. Let me show you another place where Paul uses this word carnal. Romans chapter 7. Paul's speaking of his own experience. I won't read through this whole thing, but we'll kind of hit some high spots. But Paul is talking about his own experience after he got born again. After he was recreated in the image of Jesus by making Jesus the Lord of his life. Now Paul had quite a conversion experience. He was on the road to Damascus and um, uh, on his way to persecute the church, imprison Christians, maybe kill some. All because they preached Jesus and claimed the name of Jesus superseded the law of Moses. 
And it was quite effective. It was having uh, uh, quite a great deal of success in Jerusalem. One man getting saved in Acts chapter 3 caused 5,000 people. Or I'm sorry, one man getting healed in Acts chapter 3 at the beautiful gate of the temple caused 5,000 people to get saved. That was just one event. 3,000 people had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost when they began speaking with other tongues. So we know the church is 8,000 plus 120 at the very least in a short period of time. It's tremendous success, booming success. And when it starts spreading outside of Jerusalem, man, the high priests and the council, they figured we've got to do something about this. Well, Paul was their guy. He was known as Saul then. But Saul took letters, authority from the church at Jerusalem. Not the church. You, you know what I mean. The Jews in Jerusalem, the high priest. And he's going to do everything that he can to stop the spread of the name of Jesus. Well, God had other plans. So a light shined around about Saul and his company when they were on the road to Damascus. And Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice, couldn't see anything. He was blinded because of the, the brightness of the light. Couldn't see anything. And he called out and said, uh, there was a voice that he heard from heaven. said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, Paul's answer is very interesting. This is in Acts chapter 9. Paul's answer was really interesting because he said, who art thou, Lord? I don't know who you are, but you are Lord. And the voice answers and says, I'm Jesus whom, the, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Well, Paul, the man that would become Paul, now has an experience where he knows that he knows that he knows that Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus is Lord. And he asked him, what would thou have me to do? There's two things Paul did on the road to Damascus. One is he found Jesus. He identified that Jesus was risen. And he called him Lord. Then he submitted his life to him. Folks, that is the principle of salvation. To believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, after Paul saved, what happens? Does all of a sudden everything work out for him and he knows instantly everything that we know in the Bible now and study in the scripture? No, he had to learn the same way that we learn. He learned little by little. And he struggled with some of the same things, some of the same temptations, some of the same fleshly desires that you and I do. He was just as human as us. And he describes his growing experience in chapter 7. Notice beginning in verse 14. Paul said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now when he calls himself carnal, he's saved. He's talking about a, the position that he was in after he was born again. He, and, and here's the struggle that he has. Verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not. I'm sorry for the poor translation. You can get it, but it's, it doesn't jump out at you. That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. In other words, he's saying, I can't control my flesh. The things that I, the man on the inside, wants to do are not the things that my body winds up doing. And the things that my body does are the things that the man on the inside despises. I, can't, I don't have control here. I want to control myself. I don't want to do the wrong thing, but the, the wrong thing is what I catch myself doing. Well, what's the conclusion that he comes to? And, folks, this is the key. He comes to an understanding. He comes to an understanding of reality. 
In other words, the Holy Ghost bears witness with his spirit to cause him to understand how things really are. He concludes this, he said in verse 16, If then I do that which I would not. Now the eyes uh, of the translators are a little difficult here. The eyes, really the eyes, the man on the inside. When he talks about the things that he's doing, he's talking about his flesh. And he makes that distinction. He says, for if I do that which I from the inside would not, I from the heart consent unto the law that it's good. In other words, he's saying I've identified that the man on the inside always wants to do the right thing. Even when the man on the outside is doing the wrong thing, the man on the inside wants to do right. Now then, verse 17, it is no more I that that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Notice the distinction he makes. He makes the distinction between, and the first indication we have that Paul underst- uh, Paul's understanding about spiritual things. First indication we have of Paul's understanding about man being spirit, soul, and body. And he finds out the same way we do, only we have a much greater advantage. We can take advantage of his learning. So he's making a distinction. He's realizing something. He's saying there's a man on the inside that always wants to do right. And if the behavior of my flesh goes against what the man on the inside wants, it's not the man on the inside that's doing it. Now, who is this man on the inside? Well, Paul's the one that tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus was made sin who knew no sin. He was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something that will blow your mind. And if you haven't meditated on this, you're going to, you, people could take this the wrong way and use this as, uh, say that I'm saying that I'm something that I'm not saying. I realize that this is open and subject to in, misinterpretation in a big, big way. So I'm just going to throw it out there and let God deal with you about it however you want to take it. But the reality is this. In the middle of your sin, you, the man on the inside, is still righteous. That's what Paul is identifying. Now, again, when you say that, some people say, oh, well, I wish you wouldn't say it like that. Well, what other way is there to say it? You worthless thing, you? The devil's already saying that to you, isn't he? He always has to me. What other way is there to say it? Folks, the action of your flesh doesn't change the condition of your spirit. And the condition of your spirit, because you made Jesus the Lord of your life, is that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Period. Now, you don't drift in and out of righteousness. You may drift in and out of righteous behavior. But that's not who you are. That's just what you're doing. Let me go a step further. There is no spiritual sin that a Christian can commit. Because if you're sinning from your spirit, you just cease to be righteous. Some of these things are hard to wrap our heads around, but they're true nonetheless. I've made a lot of mistakes and committed a lot of sins since the time I've been born again. I got born again when I was seven, so I've had a lifetime to mess up. And I've done more than my share. But the good news is, and I didn't know it at the time, I wish I had. The good news is, I never sinned from my heart, from my spirit. Every one of those were sins of my flesh 
They were mistakes of the head or sins of the flesh. Now, knowing that, it changes the way that I thought God looked at me then as to how he really sees us. Consider that with your kids. If your kids do something that's not against you, that they never stop loving you from their heart, but they're just making mistakes and learning their way through life and stumbling and tripping up and stuff like that, how upset can you be with them? You may be disappointed. You may be disappointed for their sake because they forfeited some of the blessing during the time that they were learning, but they didn't hurt you. They hurt themselves. Folks, when you sin, you don't hurt God. You hurt you. And God doesn't want you hurt. That's why he tries to give us boundaries. That's why he gives us commandments in the word to tell us, don't go there, don't do that, because he doesn't want you hurt. It doesn't hurt him. Now, again, some people might say, well, if I'm going to be righteous no matter what, why don't I just do whatever my flesh wants to do and enjoy life? Well, go ahead and try that. See how much you enjoy that. Folks, real Christians are terrible sinners. That doesn't mean they're not good at it. But they're never happy with it. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the things that I catch my flesh doing are not the things that I want to do from the inside. So what does he conclude? It's no more I that does it. It's not me. It's not the man on the inside that's really doing these things. It's my flesh that I haven't learned to dominate. And that's what he concludes. It's not me. Me is the one on the inside that always wants to do right. Again, verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh. Notice the translators are kind of weak when it talks about I in me. You have to look at the context to see if he's talking about the man on the inside or his flesh. He said, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me. The desire and will to do right is inside me and is always there. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In other words, he's saying, I haven't discovered the key or the secret to overcoming the temptations of my flesh. I, on the inside, want to do right. But I haven't found the key. Now, folks, is that not the condition of most of the church world? Well, Paul said that was the condition that he described as being carnal or body ruled. Now, why does he call it body ruled? Because he hasn't found the way yet. At that point in time, he hasn't found the way to conquer or dominate his flesh with his spirit. So then what is a spiritual man or a woman? One who controls their flesh through their spirit. What is a carnal Christian? A carnal Christian is one whose body still rules, even though they've been made righteous in the name of Jesus. What does Paul find out? Paul finds out a couple of things. He finds out that there's no power in his flesh to overcome it. It's not a matter of just strength of will. But he has to come to the knowledge of something, a specific knowledge that's going to set him free. What is that? Uh, Well, let's skip down to verse 25 and then we'll go into chapter 8. I thank God through Jesus Christ. No, I better start in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. In other words, what a terrible situation that I'm in. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
Who shall deliver me, the man on the inside, from this body, this flesh, where sin is present? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, here's the answer. I found that Jesus is the answer. Paul is saying there's only one means of deliverance, and that's through Jesus. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Now, the mind is poorly translated. He's talking about from my spirit. I'm serving the law of God, doing what's right. But with the flesh, sin is still dominating. So how does God deliver? How does Jesus deliver? Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore. Everybody say therefore. There is therefore. Now, Paul has brought, brought uh, himself and us to a conclusion. He's saying that through the things that I've learned, we've come to a conclusion. And that conclusion is very simply this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, some people say, Pastor Mike, you didn't read the rest of the verse. I did read the rest of the verse. I read the whole of the verse. The translators took something out of verse 4 and put it in verse 1. Don't take my word for it. Research it for yourself. The translators took the phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, out of verse 4 and applied it to verse 1. Now, I can only speculate why they did that. Because if the way that it was written, the way the text is originally written, Paul is saying, even though I'm having trouble and stumbling and over the, the desires of my flesh and doing things that my heart condemns me for, even though I cannot control my flesh, even though I'm committing sin, there is therefore now no condemnation to me. That must have been too much for the translators to accept because they went out of their way to pull a phrase out of a, a later verse. And insert it in verse 1. It's almost like they read that and said, oh, God can't be that good. But he is. Paul is saying, in the midst of me stumbling over my flesh, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. Well, then where does condemnation come from? It comes from the devil bringing it to you. The devil gives you, the devil doesn't even condemn you. The devil just brings you the thought and gets you to condemn yourself. Now, what is condemnation? Condemnation is the idea and the thought and the, the, the principle that I'm too unworthy for God's goodness. I don't deserve what God did for me. I can't really receive what the Bible says is mine because I'm not worthy. That's the purpose for condemnation. That's why the devil wants to tell you you're not who the Bible says you are. He's trying to rob something from you. He's trying to rob you of the blessings of God. He's trying to rob you of what Jesus paid for. Because he knows what Jesus paid for and he knows God doesn't hold anything against you even if you're stumbling over your flesh. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, see people always want to bring the extremes and use those as examples. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what about the people that want to do wrong? Well, what do you mean by that? Their flesh wants to do wrong? But whose flesh doesn't? Folks, you don't get spiritual enough to where your flesh stops wanting to do wrong. That's not what spiritual development is. You're always going to have trouble with the flesh for as long as you've got a flesh. That won't change until Jesus comes back and we get our redeemed bodies. Won't that be a wonderful thing? But until then, it's always the same issue. It's always the same situation. From the inside, we want to do right. Yeah, but I've, what about the people that have walked away from God and... and Served the devil so long, even as Christians, lived wrong, 
so that their conscience doesn't even bother them anymore, so that they don't even want to do right from the inside. If they're still saved, if the love of God is on the inside of them, they always want to do right. They may have pushed it down. They may have covered it over, trying to escape the knowledge on the inside of them. But if they're still in the family of God, that's still there. Well, when does somebody lose their salvation? You'll have to take that up the chain of command. That's above my pay grade. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul was pretty, pretty solid about saying some people had lost theirs. But that's him. If God tells me that somebody's lost it and then tells me I'm supposed to tell you that I'll be glad to share. But until then, it's none of my business. If I know somebody was once in, I'm going to consider them to continue to be in unless God shows me otherwise. And since it's really none of my business, I don't expect that he will. That was kind of a hint. If it's not my business, it's not yours either. So Paul comes to the revelation of something that sets him free. Folks, please understand, it's the knowledge of the word of God that he's now giving to us and preaching to us by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that brought freedom. The word revealed brought him freedom over his flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why not? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. What's the revelation Paul got? Two things. Number one, God's not mad at me even when I stumble and fall over the desires of my flesh. And number two, I've already been set free. Paul was looking for the same thing that most Christians are looking for now, for God to do something that hasn't yet been done to provide freedom or deliverance or victory for them in some means or some form. Paul came to the realization, I'm already free. I'm in Christ Jesus. There's not a second work to be done. I'm in Christ Jesus, so I'm already free. Step one, for Paul coming to understand how to dominate his flesh is the realization that he's already free. Right on the heels of that, God's not mad at me. God understands my struggle. Turn with me to John chapter 8 real quick. Now, John chapter 8, I love the 8th chapter of John. I wish I could read the whole thing, but for time's sake, we, we can't do it. If you started in about verse 12, the verse, first part of the chapter is uh, Jesus dealing with the woman taken in adultery. He doesn't condemn her. But then starting in about verse 12, Jesus starts talking about the light of the world from Verse 12 through about verse uh, 29 is a great example. Again, like I said, I wish we had time to go through it. Is a great example of two different schools of thought or two different approaches, two different points of view. A spiritual man's point of view and a natural man's point of view. Because he's talking to the Jews, he's talking to the council members, the Pharisees, and those that have come out to him. Um more to find out what's going on rather than to really hear from him. And he says some things to them, and he says they cannot receive the things of God. They cannot know where he came from. They cannot understand why he was sent and so forth. But then he tells them over and over again, I'm sent from my father. 
they finally asked him, they said, well, who are you claiming to be? He said, I'm telling you, I told you from the beginning who I was. Well, what's the first thing we have recorded that Jesus ever preached? Messiah scriptures. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. Those are scriptures that were pertaining to, and everybody understood those are scriptures that pertain to the Messiah. Jesus, after preaching on those scriptures or reading those scriptures, he said, this day is these, are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. In other words, these are talking about me. So from the beginning, he didn't hide who it was. The idea that Jesus went through the, his three years of earthly ministry and never really let people know, never was really upfront with them about who he was and, and tried to keep it hidden and stuff, that's just not true. Jesus told everybody, this is who I am. That's up to them to accept it or reject it, but Jesus was real clear about it. Real clear about it. He didn't go around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. But there weren't many opportunities that he missed to say, this is what the Scripture said about me. And those were always Messianic Scriptures. So it shows why they could not receive. Now, why couldn't they receive? There's a verse of Scripture in Mark chapter 7 and verse 13 that's real important, real interesting. Uh, make a note of it. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus said, just talking about some things. And Jesus said, uh, well, specifically he's talking about how the, the Jews had changed the law of God that says honor your father and mother. But you say if you give a gift, then you can get out of honoring your mother and father. And then he said this, Mark seven thirteen. he said, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Now, that's a real interesting thing for Jesus to say because Jesus is the one that told us how powerful the word of God is. Folks, you need to realize the whole universe was created by the Word of God. That means the Word of God is greater and stronger than anything you can see, anything you can feel. It's greater and stronger than anything else that exists except one thing. One thing can nullify it. And Jesus said that they made the Word of God of none effect or without power through their tradition. Now, the word tradition is interesting because it literally means preconceived notion or reasonings. Now, the reason the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God and the reason carnal Christians refuse to accept some of the truths of the Bible is for one and only one reason, and that is they already have preset ideas. It may be through wrong teaching in church. It may be something that he came up on, the, on their own. It could be any, from any number of sources, but it's always the same thing, and that is a preconceived or a predetermined idea that they've got that keeps them from accepting what God said is true. Some people have a preconceived notion that God sends sickness upon people to teach them. So no matter how many scriptures you show them that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you're healed, they're not going to receive. Why? They can't because they've accepted their own preconceived ideas and the truth of the word can't break through that. Why? Because God is subject to your will in operating in your life. Now, wouldn't it be nice if the Word of God was quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword in such a manner that whenever the Word is preached, then everybody's wrong idea vanished? Wouldn't that be cool? Doesn't work that way, though, does it? Sometimes it takes a period of time, days, weeks, months, sometimes even years, of meditating on the Scripture and finally chipping away little by little by little. Those wrong ideas vanish away. Or are dislodged. This is what Paul wrote to the church. 
and told us to take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. In other words, he says, pull down the wrong thoughts that contradict the kingdom of God and the things pertaining to the word and get rid of those and replace those with thinking what God's word says. That's a process. We saw the beginning of that process for Paul when he was a baby Christian or a young Christian, what he called a carnal Christian. Notice what Jesus says after he tells the, the, uh, the Jews these things about himself. Notice it says in verse uh, 30. Well, let me back up to verse 29 and get the tail end of what he said. John 8, 30, uh, 29, I'm sorry. I'll get it out. John eight twenty nine. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Then notice verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Now we have to assume that the many is the Jews. Not just the the congregation. We don't know what kind of congregation it was. What we do know is that the Jewish leaders were the ones around Jesus. And those were the, the ones that he was talking to in the preceding verses back to verse 12. So the many has to mean members of the council. Pharisees. As he spake these words, many believed on him. I don't know how many he is, but it sounds like more than just a couple. As he spake these words, many of them, many believed on him. Notice verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews that believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews that believed on him. Please notice he's talking to the ones that now believe. Jesus didn't stop and say, how many will confess me as their Lord and Savior? He hadn't been to the cross yet, so that wouldn't work. But believing on him is as close to believing in the Messiah, is as close to getting uh, in line for the blessing of salvation when Jesus is raised from the dead as you could possibly get. They're in the same condition, same situation, same category as the apostles. And notice what Jesus said to the ones that believed on him, not the ones that were rejecting him the ones that believed on him then said jesus to those jews that believed on him if everybody say if if you continue in my word then are you my disciples indeed please notice that jesus makes a very specific distinction between believers and disciples now here's where the church is messed up because the great commission is not go out into the world and get people saved it's not go into the world and make believers of the unsaved. Jesus said that the great commission was going to all the world and make disciples of all men. What does it take, according to Jesus, to change somebody from being a believer to a disciple? The word. Now, doesn't it take the word? I mean, aren't they believing the word to become a believer to begin with? Yeah. But a disciple continues in the word. A disciple goes past just the word of God that convinces them that Jesus is who he says he is. A disciple continues in the word. Now, folks, I know I'm asking questions that can't really be answered. But what percentage of the modern-day church world do you consider to be disciples according to Jesus' definition? That's a depressing thought, isn't it? I'm glad God doesn't get depressed. Jesus then said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. 
the continuation of the word, the living in the word of God for the believer is the necessary ingredient for him to become a disciple, which we all should aspire to be. What's the result of following in the word? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, folks, please understand, we've got to put other scriptures together with this and clarify knowing the truth. He didn't say, and you'll hear the truth. Knowing the truth implies an acceptance, a receiving of the truth, a keeping of the truth, a doing of the truth. Because James 1.22 says, but be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He didn't say the word of God continuing in the word of God will cause you to hear the truth. He said the word of God will cause you to know the truth. Again, that implies something beyond just hearing with the natural ear. It brings us to the, to the thought of Paul coming to the understanding in his carnal condition that he's already been set free by the life of, spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now all he has to do is walk it out. Notice the difference between believers and disciples. Believers are made new creatures in Christ Jesus. But are believers going to be spiritual men or carnal men? For the most part, carnal men. We have that shown to us through Paul's example. If Paul, who turned out to be perhaps in some sense the greatest of the apostles, started off as a carnal Christian, where do we expect the rest of us going to start off? What was the thing that made the difference in Paul's carnal Christian condition to, make, to becoming a spiritual man? Could it be anything other than the revelation of God's word? Same thing is true for you and me. Folks, the word of God is key to spiritual growth, spiritual development, to living up to be the man or the woman in Christ Jesus that God intends for you to be. It all comes down to one thing, and that's the Word. Pastor Mike, all you do is talk about the Word. Thank God you realize that. Because <laughs> that's the only thing that's, that's the key. That is the only key that there is. And you shall know the truth. How? If you continue in my Word. And the truth, the knowledge of that truth acted on will make you free. What does that mean? What does he mean talking to believers about being free? Now, they argue. The Jews start arguing. They say, well, we're not bound by anything. That's the way a lot of Christians are that are bound by everything. We're not bound by anything. When he talks about being made free, he's talking about the freedom in every area and every aspect of life that the victory of Jesus won on the cross and through his resurrection purchased for you and me. Victory over sin, victory over death, victory over poverty, victory over depression, Victory over circumstance, victory over everything in life. More than conquerors through him that loved us. Every aspect, every area of life. Total and complete freedom. Doesn't mean there won't be challenges. Don't mean there won't be temporary setbacks. But the result is freedom. Doesn't mean you float through life on flowery beds of ease. There'll be challenges. There'll be times for you to exercise your faith. There'll be fights of faith that you have to fight. But the end result is always victory. That's what Jesus says comes through continuing in the word and the knowledge that it brings you. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. 
you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Folks, you need to understand something about your Heavenly Father. That is, he has a mortal enemy. His name is Satan. And there is no way, under no circumstances, under no stretch of the imagination, would God ever put his children down here on the earth subject to whatever the devil wanted to do at his whim and desire without giving his children the power to stomp the devil's head got to be careful what examples I use here. But I don't want my kids to just be even with other kids. I want my kids to win. If that means putting them back a grade so that they win, that's okay with me. If that means giving them an extra advantage, that's okay with me. Now, folks, I'm a good dad. I'm a godly dad. And it doesn't bother me a bit for other people to be disadvantaged so that my kids win. If I think that, what do you think God thinks about you concerning the devil? If we only knew the power in the name of Jesus, if we could only see for just a moment, if we just got a glimpse of the power, the unlimited power that God has made available to us through the life of God within us to overcome anything and everything that there is of the enemy. God sitting in heaven saying, go boy, you've got what you need. I gave you an advantage. Do you realize what an advantage you have over the unsaved? Bless their darling hearts. But God in heaven has to sit back and watch his children say, I don't know why things aren't working out. God, why'd you do this to me? That's not the way he set things up. He set it up so that you would be more than a conqueror to him that loved us. That means never lose, folks. Now, however you interpret it, however you want to live it out in your own life, that's up to you. But it means never lose. Again, it doesn't mean you won't have challenges. It doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. But the ultimate end of the, of the, the contest is your victory. In every aspect. And that comes one and only one way. And that's through the knowledge of the word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for being a good heavenly father. We love you so much, Father. And we thank you for all that you've done through us. Through the mighty work. The finished work of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. That we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Sin, sickness, and spiritual death. Poverty. We've been redeemed from all of the works of the enemy. Through the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we thank you that the life of God dwells in us because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. We thank you that your life is ever constant, ever with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you, Father, for the communion and fellowship that we can have with you through your word. What a privilege it is to live by your word, Father. What a privilege it is to live by faith. To walk by faith instead of what we see. Knowing that your word never fails. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. What a privilege it is, Father, to walk according to the man on the inside and not according to the flesh. Oh, we've stumbled. We've messed up, but we've learned. 
We've learned that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We've learned that we've been set free by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've learned that you're always for us and never against us. No condemnation, no matter how bad we've missed it. Father, we love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go real quick this morning, we want to receive communion that represents the life of God that we have within us. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward.